HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Happy Valentine's Day, and welcome to a slightly extended version of your favorite cheesy show on the Heritage Radio Network, Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, and uh, my producer today is uh, Jack Insley, and our engineer is Nat Wiener. Um, Thank you guys both for being here. And um, today's show, uh, for this, you know, momentous love uh, holiday, is all about a thing called Setopia. And while the world may be a new one for our listeners out there, the concept is as old as civilization. Setopia is a guiding principle that was introduced to me in a very compelling and excellent book called Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. And um, I have today not one, not two, but three amazing Setopian guests from two different countries and all walks of life. Um, so today to talk with me about Setopia, I'd like to welcome Claire Harton, who is a systems thinker and a kind of connector extraordinaire, who's a great, great friend of mine living in New York. Jimmy Carboni, who is a restaurateur and community organizer and beer expert and excellent chef at Jimmy's Number 43 in the East Village. And Carolyn Steele, who is joining us all the way from London, who's the author of the book, Hungry City. So thank you guys so much for being on the show today. <laughs> Very happy to be here. Yes. <laughs> Carolyn, what time is it by you? Um, it's about 7.32 and a half. Oh, 7.32 and a half. Okay, so that's not so bad. I was thinking we were going to call <laughs> you like so late and you know, you were going to get to bed oh, late. No, no, no. The night is yet young. <laughs> Fantastic. So... Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. Now, just to start off on the show, I wanted to um, have Jimmy read one of uh, his favorite quotes from your book because we were kind of going through some uh, things that we loved uh, before the show started, and he found this passage, which I thought was great. Hi, Carolyn. How are you? 
Hi, Jimmy. I'm very well indeed. How are you? Well, I want to read a little bit from your book to start it off so our listeners can know what we're talking about. Your book is Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. And a good quote is, The cities we live in were shaped by modern food distribution systems. Without them, our cities wouldn't even exist. We are as dependent on food conglomerates as ancient city dwellers were on their king or emperor. Yet unlike them, we have no direct relationship with those who feed us. That's just one of the little quotes from your great book. And um, I know that Anne and Claire are here, and we all want to talk, talk with you and talk about your book. So fantastic! I I, I wanted what what? How would you define Cytopia, Carolyn? Because it's such a I don't know. It's it's a very you word. I, I hadn't heard of it anywhere. <laughs> I think you invented no, it for the book. I I, I I invented this word, um, and I'm, I'm going to try to explain what Cytopia is in less than an hour. Um, <laughs> but, but basically, it means food place. Um, from the Greek word sitos for food and topos for place. Um, and I actually invented this word because I was looking at the way cities were shaped by food and have always been shaped by food um, and wondering why we've lost sight of this incredibly important aspect of our lives. Um, and I was reading about utopia, um, which, as everybody I'm sure knows, uh, means either good place um, or it can mean no place. It's got a sort of funny double derivation from the Greek. And I thought, well, isn't it weird that, you know, when we try to imagine how we should live, we always talk about utopian dreams and, you know, what if we could live in utopia? And yet the whole point of utopia is that it's perfect and therefore can never exist. And I thought, well, you know, if we want a way of thinking about how we live, wouldn't it be good if we had a way of thinking about it that actually could exist? Um, so the reason I went to the ancient Greek, as it were, is I wanted to propose Utopia as an alternative to Utopia. Um, in other words, I believe we actually do already live in a world shaped by food. Um, and if we recognize that fact, we can then use food as an incredibly powerful, multidisciplinary, collaborative tool to think about how we live and to hopefully design it better. Absolutely. Well, and when I think utopia, too, I always think about kind of like some weird Jetsons like city in the sky, you know, where everything just kind of like magically appears. And, uh, you know, to be honest, it's kind of cold, you know, not very fun. And so food, of course, what what's more fun than food, you know, being able to sit around uh, the table with people that you love and um, and eating something that has meaning and value and, and that, you know, nourishes us and is delicious. And I think it's a perfect, uh, you know, it's a perfect lens to view uh, our lives through. So it's just... Well, I, it, I completely agree. And I mean, I think what, what brings us all together um, is love of food. And actually, I think what's interesting about that is that, you know, the principle of love and joy and pleasure is really what one needs in society. And I just think food is something that carries all those meanings incredibly well. Um, but what I also thought was interesting when I was looking at Utopia, and I agree, some of the projects can get incredibly sort of abstract and actually quite frightening in a way. But what's interesting is there's also quite often the theme of food running through them, sort of almost unnoticed. So if you look at Thomas More's uh, Utopia, for instance, um, you know, farming is the one activity that everybody in Utopia takes part in, men, women, and children, and everybody mm. does it for two years in their life, you know, so... Kind of like army. About, 
Sorry? Oh, no, I said kind of like being in the army in some places. You have to... Uh... Oh, like, yes. And I mean, obviously, this is the thing about utopian visions is they're all kind of fantasies, you know, so they can get out of control quite easily. But, I mean, he just talks about utopia being a place where people loved food, they loved working with food, they used to have kind of gardening competitions in their back gardens, you know, everybody shared communal meals and so on. And I just thought how interesting that there's so much about food in, in this vision, and yet, of course, it's, it's deliberately written as a fantasy. It can't exist. But what if we sort of took some of those elements and said, look, you know, these elements already exist in the real world. It's just that they're kind of undervalued or they're not really recognized as powerfully as they could be. Can't we take all of those good things that already exist and weave them into a sort of more consistent vision? Absolutely. Well, it's funny. That was a question that kind of came up, um, you know, just in my thinking about our conversation. That notion of Satopia, I mean, has it ever... Do you think that there was actually a period in history where Satopia did exist? Or is that just kind of, yeah, a nostalgic longing, like this Thomas More idea, like it was a fantasy? Um, or was there kind of a time where people did live like that? I think Satopia can also I mean, I, I be used as an Satopia, adjective. Uh, sort of still exists actually but but you know for me you know what it is you know food place somewhere that's sort of consciously designed through food you know with with the idea of everything that food represents in mind so you have to sort of say well you know Sotopia never exists unless people actually value food and understand it for what it is but if they do value food then you know there are lots and lots of models that you can look to I mean historically you know, I mean, just to give you one example, the Italian city-state in the 14th century, under um, this painting that I love, and I actually write about it in the book, the Lorenzetti Allegory of Good Government, is actually about the relationship between Siena and its local hinterland. And it's this beautiful fresco that's on the wall of the, the town hall in Siena. But it just talks about the relationship between the city and the country. And, you know, you see these fantastically well-tended fields and olive groves and, you know, people going out to hunt in the woods and sheep wandering into the city and, you know, asses coming in with grain on their backs and so on. I, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, in the 14th century, an allegory of good government was basically all about food, you know, and food as the thing that bound the city and the countryside together and that sustained life. Um... So that to me is like like the sort of it's almost like the most the clearest image I know of what Zootopia can be. And I always sort of say to people, well, you know, what do you think an allegory of good government would look like today? Right. Well, it's it's true. I mean, I you know, if if that painting existed today in the White House, you know, what would that look like? It would be, you know, <laughs> it would be <laughs> like some like fiery like, hell like with it. Monsanto on one side. And... Garden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think let's let Jimmy and Claire talk a little bit because they also, I feel like we're all Satopian in that we uh, have chosen to incorporate food into our lives in a kind of, in a, in a way that's slightly different or, you know, uh, it just uses food in, in, in a way that's broader than sitting down and, and feeding ourselves. Um, Jimmy, how I, do you... I mean, can I just say that, that part two, in answer to your previous question, is that I mean, absolutely, in my mind, all three of you are Zootopian, and I think that's what's so exciting about, you know, both having this conversation and the concept is that Zootopia 
still exist today. It exists in people, it exists in initiatives, it exists in mindsets, you know. So it's just a question of recognizing those things as all part of the same thing. Absolutely. Well, well, Jimmy, how do you how do you conceive of Jimmy's number 43 as being Satopian? I mean, I can think of 10 things right off the top of my head, but you have so many interesting things going on. Well, um, <clears throat> to take a step back looking at Carolyn's book, there's a photo in the book about and animals were a common sight in British cities until re- recently and in, and in New York. And um, <clears throat> the one thing about Satopia is that there did come a time in our modern era where, where there was no sign of of the food that the sources of the food you would eat, whether it was you know, gardens or, or more, more, most mostly animals. You know, it seems like with heritage meats, we talk a lot about these things. Um, so one thing at Jimmy's number 43 is I don't think that we have created anything. It's more that, that people out there want this. You know, they say, um, you know, in that book, Field of Dreams, it's like build it and they'll come. Well, the opposite is they'll come for what they want and then you, you'll kind of build around it. And that's kind of what we do is that, is that we could just as easily have a rock club or uh, a theater house. <laughs> Which would <laughs> be it, su- super fun, I'm sure. Yeah. But it turns out that people want to come and talk about Northeast Farmstead cheeses or they want to drink local beers or, or, or they want to have, uh, we have coming up a slow food hunting demo where someone's going to come in with a deer and show people how, how to butcher an animal that you've, you've hunted and killed and uh, you can break it down into cuts of meat. So um, there's definitely, the, the people want to do these things. They want to get back to the way we were until, you know, even 70 years ago. You know, we, we had animals in the street. People raised animals and it was natural and that's how people got a lot of their food. Yeah, well, yeah. and and just a, a quick thing that I was thinking about, you know, few, very few restaurateurs, especially restaurateurs in New York, would be so kind of easygoing and open-minded and just kind of inspired as you to let all that happen because there are so many uh, other pressures on people who own small businesses. It's just a, it's an incredible thing that there you've created this venue for any kind of event like this to take place. It's really, really special. I think that brings us up to the notion of where architecture comes in as part of this discussion, which is certainly part of Carolyn's background being trained as an architect um, first before bringing yourself into this responsiveness to the notion of food and cities and coining the term Zootopia. Um, and seeing, as, as I know Carolyn has created this word Zootopia as a practical as well as conceptual tool that can serve um, many people in many fields, across fields, because there wasn't that term before. And so Zootopia actually is a very forward-thinking term for those of us who think about design, build, and use of cities and spaces. And one of the very exciting things about Jimmy's number 43 and the way Jimmy uses this space is that there's the side room, and it's sort of separate from this main space, main bar, main restaurant room, main kitchen space, and the use of the space. So it wasn't building a new space. It's the use of existing spaces, um, which I think even as uh, we can think about as we sit here in the shipping container mm-hmm. in the backyard of a pizza place in the middle of Williamsburg. <laughs> well, and, and also, you know, just real, real quick. The other thing is that then, uh, you know, through that space, um, he creates things that are participatory. And I think in this era and part of a big part of Zootopia is participation and it's community and it's learning to do new things. It's having conversations across disciplines and um, that's something that Jimmy is really has has enabled to happen, which is which is pretty incredible. 
I think we're in a very special era too of entrepreneurship, um, creative entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship. Um, call any get guys of those that you like. Um, and I think Zootopia is really helpful for understanding some of the leadership that's actually already out there. Um, I'm just completely amazed by the responsiveness of entrepreneurs. Um, as soon as they can f- find an opportunity and perceive that opportunity, they can form themselves around it. Um, and then we end up with food shops, food retail, restaurants, places that actually intersect with community. And that's something um, I'd love to hear Carolyn actually speak a little more about is that it's not just architecture of building new. It's how we actually use existing spaces. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what, yeah. Are some, what are some examples that you've seen, Carolyn, of, of some Zootopian, uh, I don't know, Zootopian architecture, design, businesses, uh, community de- development uh, in, in, in your work? I mean, I think what, what's, I mean, most visibly happening uh, in the U.S. and in the U.K. is people are realizing that actually getting your food in some kind of weird plastic packet from a large box somewhere outside the city is not a very satisfying thing. Um, and, and there's a sort of very strong movement to sort of get back into growing your own vegetables. Um, I mean, in, in the U.K., I mean, there's never been a higher waiting list for allotment space um, since the Second World War, you know. So, so this is really extraordinary. And, and there's a number of um, projects, and I know there's a huge number in New York as well. I mean, I think in a way you've led, led the way on this because I think farming got so bad, um, <laughs> uh, you know, in the U.S. Um, early on, really sort of in terms of the sort of, you know, large agribusiness type approach to producing food that the counter-revolution started early. Um, so it is inspirational kind of community garden projects and so on, you know, organic box schemes, community-supported agriculture, you know, all of these sorts of movements. And one really sort of just wandering around London now, one actually feels it. You know, you, you come across a sort of odd bit of guerrilla gardening, you know, on, on a roundabout, or, um, you know, these kinds of grounds-up sort of uh, projects, I would say, is where it's predominantly at at the moment. And, you know, for instance, the, the, the mayor of London is picking up on this, and there's now this scheme called Capital Growth, which is basically trying to get... 2012 new growing spaces in London in time for the Olympics. Um, you know, and on one level, you could say, well, that's sort of, you know, slightly window dressing and, you know, how real is it? But actually, there's a groundswell. And I, I think that's what's really exciting for me is that, you know, the horizon of visibility of these kinds of issues is going up. And as it goes up, the possibility of doing bigger scale projects and actually starting to influence policy and all of these sorts of things increases. So, so, I mean, that's a bit of a sort of vague answer, but I mean, I would say there's lots and lots of little initiatives happening, and their visibility is increasing all the time. Um, I can give you one other example. It's not just about growing food, but um, actually a mutual friend of ours, um, Claire's and mine, Arthur Potts Dawson, um, is a chef in London who's opened a restaurant called Acorn House, uh, where he has a sort of wormery out the back, and he reuses all his food scraps did you say wormery? But he also sorry. Did you say wormery? He has a wormery. That is fantastic. A, I love a, that word. <laughs> <laughs> well, he actually has a sort of you know organic uh, system going within his his restaurant, so he can use his own food scraps. He can break them down, turn them into compost. 
got a growing area out the back where he grows herbs for his restaurant. Um, he reuses um, old cooking fuel to run his vans around. He trains uh, local chefs in his kitchen. You know, it's, there's a number of sort of things that kind of come together in a project like that. And, you know, you could say it's a seed project because it's quite a small place and so on. But I think, you know, when people start to show the principles of joining up these ecological cycles, and they do it in a way that, again, I mean, it's that word love again, you know, but they do it with love and care, and, and the whole thing has a sort of sociable remit to it as well. As, as it sounds very much like Ginny's does, I can't wait to get to New York to come and <laughs> visit the side room and Ginny. But, um, you know, it's, it's these kinds of things. I'd say that's where this movement, if it is a movement, is at now. It's a sort of fantastic exemplary local projects you know and i think it's just building up to the point where these things are going to start to get taken very very seriously you know at a policy level and so on and it, hopefully we'll start to see these things become you know the norm versus just a some wacky exactly. fringe thing it would be wonderful to have every restaurant exactly. in new york have have a wormery out back and to <laughs> And to, you know, uh, really make conscious decisions about all this because, let's face it, it's it's actually more fun when you are able to incorporate all of those different things into your daily life. It just, it, it's a challenge and I think that people, I don't know, it's, it's inspiring. It, it lets people work with their hands and their minds and that's also something that's totally been taken away in the food equation. Absolutely. Might be a good time yep. to use a quote I brought from Carolyn, you speaking on your website about your book, um, about saying how waste is just a matter of attitude, and then looking towards Vienna, and I would add to that San Francisco, as cities that have managed to collect the majority of their kitchen waste now, um, they've gotten the policy-making side so that it actually, there's the support for that from the so-called departments of sanitation, um, and that we need to design around, you know, allow policymaking and designing to allow us to design around complexities of inf and infrastructural ones of this post-industrial world where we live in. And that includes um, helping some organizations take the lead and then have policy supported. And um, without the policy side of it, it's hard to scale up. And that's something that interests, I think, all of us quite a bit is how does this actually go beyond some interesting smaller prototypes and us to look at them how they can become citywide municipal-wide or countrywide well that's actually mm. i think that is a great point uh, we have to we have to take a short short break but i think that when we come back that is the perfect place to launch off that idea of waste and uh how that is sotopian as well so we'll be back in just a minute uh cutting the curd on heritage radio network <laughs>
Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, our show today has been sponsored by Fairway, the Upper West Side's first Utopian market. Um, and my guests today are Jimmy Carboni, Claire Harton, and Carolyn Steele, who is author of a fabulous book, Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. Everyone uh, should have a copy. It is an amazing, amazing book. Um, <laughs> So, Jimmy, wait, Jimmy looks like he wants to say something. What do you want Carolyn, to say? Carolyn, I want to say it's great being on the radio with you. And whether it's your accent <laughs> or the phone line you're on, I feel like that you're speaking from the BBC. <laughs> and we're here just listening to you know, this well educated, well spoken woman because we're still just all in the colonies here. Yeah, we're in the colonies. <laughs> Drinking beer out at Roberta's. It's a pleasure to be, to be joining you. And I, I feel I should be sort of sitting up straight, you know, with a suit on, sort of <laughs> representing the BBC now. But uh, actually, I'm in my pajamas, if you really want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, so what about this idea of waste? I know that Claire is very interested in this topic. Um, I certainly am as well. And that, that does play... Um, a big role in Setopia because that old adage, waste not, want not, you know, every farm was a self-sustaining organism and um, a city should ideally be that way too. Um, so how does waste play into the whole idea of Setopia? Well, it, it's critical. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you look at what a city is, uh, I mean, it, well, I, I, I like to think of it as a kind of human nest. You know, it's a place where humans gather together, you know, we're animals, I mean, we might be civilized ones, but, you know, we're still organic entities. And if you think of the inputs and outputs of a human body, really a city just replicates those, you know, plus it sort of augments them with, with the use of a whole bunch of things that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily need if you were living on your own. You know, we light streets, we kind of move cars around and so on. But, I mean, I think in terms of how we need to think about the way we live in the future, we have to rethink what a city is as an ecological, uh, eternal cycle, effectively. And I think this is where, you know, our our ancient attitudes to waste uh, are starting to actually come back because, historically, the only way a city could keep its soil fertile was by growing market gardens and so on around the city and then using its waste, I mean, it's, it's night soil was the kind of generally used term, but, you know, human and animal manure was put on land. Um, and that way, you know, the sort of the city's inputs and outputs were sort of a closed loop. And I think with industrialization, we just completely lost the plot. Um, you know, we started thinking of a city as a kind of one-way valve where you could just suck in nutrients from somewhere, you know, use them up, and then just get rid of them, you know, this idea of being able to sort of send things, quote-unquote, away, as if they would just disappear. Um, you know, and I think that was sort of part of the, the whole unraveling of our relationship with nature was this idea that, you know, our waste wasn't valuable, it wasn't effectively food and energy, uh, which effectively it is. So, I mean, it's much harder now, of course. I mean, the problem today is that what goes in the sewage system. I mean, Claire, I know, has been looking at this issue a lot recently, but, you know, what goes in the sewage system of a modern city is not just organic material. I mean, it's all sorts of hideous chemicals and heavy metals and so on. So it's much more difficult to extract the nutrients. But, I mean, I think, uh, you know, sort of cradle-to-cradle thinking and so on actually teaches us that we've we've got to look at the entire process of what we use 
Um, you know, and it's not just waste that's kind of outputs from a city, but it's actually wastefulness in the process of production uh, that we have to look at. I mean, a huge amount of food, for instance, gets grown um, that's never even harvested in the UK and the US. You know, it's just it's food left in the ground. So, and you know, the wastefulness in the whole process of a distribution system, for instance, that only allows an apple of a certain size to go into a packet because it has to sort of fit into a supermarket shelf. So in England, for instance, you get a third of the apples supplied to the major supermarkets outgraded because they don't fit the packet size. You know, all of these things build into a whole picture of an unbelievably wasteful society. And sorry, I know I talk a lot, but can I just say, ultimately it comes down to a question of values. You know, what do you value? Do you value food? Do you value the earth? Do you value, you know, biodiversity? Um... And all of these things, you know, in the end, come down to a question of, you know, how, how we sort of view our inputs and outputs, really our place on the planet. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, waste, waste is, a, is probably the most uh, urgent concept to sort of to rethink in that way. Well, I was just thinking, I mean, I don't want to uh, uh, change the subject too quickly. We can certainly come back to waste, but it just your, your thoughts uh, got me thinking about, you know, the kind of business that, that I run. Um, I sell cheeses from very small farms all over the Northeast. Um, uh, you know, Jimmy sources from very small farms to, for, to you know, feed his restaurant. Um, Patrick, who Patrick Martins, who founded the um, the radio network here, he has a business called Heritage Foods, where he sells um, rare breeds of pork to um, different restaurants across the country. All of these businesses are kind of uh, very. Um, I don't know, they're anti-standardization, is I guess what I'm saying. And, and standardization of anything and, and efficiency tends to seem to lead to waste. Um, mm. And I think that because, you know, like you said, for, uh, Mother Nature didn't intend for everything to fit in the same size package. Uh, Mother Nature didn't intend for, you know, pigs to only have chops. Pigs have lots of different parts. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so there are all these... Uh, um, sort of, I don't know, I, I think what I'm trying to say is that maybe the businesses that can, or the businesses, the organizations, the restaurants, whatever entity, the, the people that can deal with um, sort of the complexity of Mother Nature and of food um, are going to be the ones that kind of lead this this movement. And so I think another big part of your book that discusses that is is the part about markets and um, how markets have kind of played a role uh, just, you know, in people's lives from the beginning of civilization and how those markets are probably, again, going to become a, a bigger part of, of Zootopia and how everyone has to get their food because, let's face it, the supermarkets and, uh, you know, the big distributors, the industrial farms of the world, that's not, I don't know, people, people seem uninspired by those things. Um, mm. And I, mean, I think you're raising two very interesting questions there, and very important ones. I mean, the diversity issue, which supermarkets definitely are sort of, if you like, in the opposite camp to. And the second is, you know, the, the sociability of food. Um, you know, and the fact that historically, you know, a city would have been fed by a huge diversity of suppliers, you know, many of whom would have come into the town themselves or they would have gone through a distributor. But, but somebody that was sort of, as it were, only one 
you know, human contact away from the, the guy that was digging the stuff out of the ground. Um, what's interesting now, of course, is that we, we, we're having farmers markets again, which replicate that process. And I think people respond naturally to them very, very powerfully and realize that there is something here, a sort of sociability and a, an identifiability of what their food is and who's growing it that, that people really respond to. The problem, however, is scale. You know, because, I mean, if you've got a city of kind of 60,000 people or something, you can notionally feed it from one or two central markets. Um, but when you've got a city of six million, you know, that, then that's where the sort of the issues come in. And I think, you know, for me, um, you know, would I rather buy my food in a market or a supermarket? I mean, it's a complete no-brainer. But, you know, as an architect, I'm sort of looking for, okay, well, if we like sociability and, and identifiability of food... How do we evolve systems that can cope with the scale of a modern city? You know, and I think that's where we've got to get much more inventive because at the moment I think, you know, the, the options tend to polarise between, well, you know, is it going to be the supermarkets or is it going to be farmers' markets? And you think, well, you know, where's the middle scale? There's got to be a sort of a third way here. You know, and they start to think about sort of food hubs and, you know, I guess things like farmers' co-ops and, and indeed food co-ops. I know you've got Park Slope in Brooklyn, which is a fantastic co-op that sort of starts to offer a third model, if you like. Um, so so it, it is sort of dealing with the scale, but also, as you rightly say, I mean, I write a lot in the book about how, you know, the whole identity of a city sort of tended to be played through the market and how a market used not to be just a place for buying and selling food, but also a place of celebration, a place where people went to chat to each other, you know, to find out what was going on. You know, they were, they were great fun. I mean, going back to your point at the beginning of this program, you know, food is about pleasure and joy. And, and you know, meeting other people is not just about the, you know, the grim business of staying alive, you know, although obviously sometimes it, it is about that too. So... Um, lots and lots of issues, but as I would say, it's sort of, it's actually, to me, really a fundamental question of rethinking what kind of society we want to live in. And I think food can be a brilliant way of bringing people together, not just to eat, but also, you know, to understand more about where their food comes from and, you know, out into the streets to buy the stuff. And I think that's... Uh where Carolyn's coming from and as we think about these things, how not just as we how we perceive waste, but also this role that markets play. Um, and then going, get, coming back to this notion of the, how much we need this entrepreneurial class, shall we call them, that have sprung up. And it's, you know, it's fascinating MBA programs. It's fascinating everybody across every culture right now that there is this notion of entrepreneurship and that as my husband Mike had said this morning, someone's got to take the lead and we need to then have those leads create prototypes that we can look to. So it's actually really important that restaurants like Jimmy's actually shift the way they buy and actually Jimmy runs a CS or he allows a CSA to run itself through a side room. As well um, as the now the traditional nutrition guild as well, right? And in fact, yeah, Claudia Keel, who should be here right now, we wish, um, and run, who sh runs with Amish farmers some distribution of dairy through that space. And then also, and your shop as being entrepreneurial and coming back to an old market and helping revive it. Um, I think it, we, you know, and, and then there's organizations on the academic side, say like the Urban Design Lab at Columbia University that are interested in these things. But we really have to look at how entrepreneurship can create these models and then these models can actually go viral in some way and inspire other people to continue spreading this notion of small shops because 
one of the things that very much interests me on the notion of scale as I think about it and sort of become obsessive with it over the last so many years is that actually it's the incremental changes as one shop inspires yet another entrepreneur to open up another shop, et cetera. Um, it sort of mushrooms or spores out. One, and, uh, oh. one thing that Ann did too when Ann's shop came, uh, the other cheese distributors weren't just focusing on American farms. Um, you, were, you were, you know, the, the traditional, you know, upskill cheese distributor or cheese store had French, Italian, Spanish, and American cheeses. And when Anne came in, she chose to focus only on American farmstead cheeses, and that influenced not only me, but I'm sure quite a number of restaurateurs and, and customers uh, to buy American cheeses. And now I, I only buy American cheeses, thanks to Anne. Thanks. And I have to say, I've tasted Anne's cheese, and it's absolutely awesome. And I was blown away because. You know, I, I came to the States, you know, in the 1980s and stuff, and my experience of American cheese then was sort of slices of craft. And I, really didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize there was that much variety, and it's astonishing. And I just, I, I saw Anne's cheese, and I just couldn't believe it when I started tasting it. When she told me it was all American, I nearly fell over. Um, it's so delicious and so varied. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing. I think there's been an amazing turnaround in artisanal cheese in the UK and the US. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it's very funny. All of it becomes, it's just a matter of uh, 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 a critical, well, people starting to do things for themselves. I mean, I guess the, I'm thinking about the entrepreneurship thing and how it relates to Setopia. And the, the reality of the fact is, the, or the reality of the, the matter is that, you know, um, there are no real easy ways to get the food that Jimmy and I are supporting from the places that they're, they're grown, which are actually quite close, ironically, um, into the city. Um, but it, so it takes a lot of uh, creative and a lot of collaborative um, kind of, you know, ideas and, and crazy schemes to actually get it done. But it's not impossible. And I think that that, uh, you know, that kind of do-it-yourself spirit is what it's the, that's what's at the root of every entrepreneur and that is also what's at the root of every food lover is that they are willing to go out of their way in some way, shape, or form to to find that thing that they want, whether it's the perfect donut or, you know, um, an apple that is only in season at a certain point of time, or a delicious, um, you know, a delicious dish that that Jimmy might serve up. And so, th I think, um, you know, that that these, uh, you know, it's just going to the, the collaboration and the kind of uh, scrappiness, I guess, of, of what we're all doing uh, is just going to, it's going to hopefully, yeah, lead to more scrappiness and more kind of a rejection of the easy, efficient, standard, wasteful way and the more joyful, you know, kind of uh, confusing, convoluted, but uh, tasty way that we're trying to run our businesses. One thing I want to ask about, Anne, is uh, the Essex Street Market. So can you tell us a little more about it? I know that it was founded as a public market. And how has it evolved? And, and, what, and what could role it, could what that could play? It become yeah, how, what role could that play in Green us roof. getting good food? And Oh, gosh. Well, the Essex Market is a super interesting place. Um, my friend Severin um, described it best when she called it an oubliette, which I guess in French means like a little forgotten place, um, because it was, a, it was a market started by Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia in the 30s. And at that point, the objective was to get all of the pushcart vendors off the streets um, and into a marketplace because there was just, you know, traffic and havoc and <laughs> all kinds of craziness on the Lower East Side. Um, and so they did 
that, and and it was really a market in, a, in the old fashioned sense. It was food, it was clothing, um, you know, it was household goods, anything that you wanted, you could get at the Essex Market, and. Over, you know, it kind of had its heyday in the 50s and 60s, I would say, and then started, entered a period of decline in the 70s, 80s, and 90s as the neighborhood kind of, um, you know, tanked a little bit. But that is kind of, you know, I, I feel like it's a very real and very accurate representation of what a marketplace should be because it feeds feeds the neighborhood, it feeds all demographics of people, it feeds them well, it feeds them cheaply. Um, and right now the market is at a state of kind of renaissance and, and, and revival and people in, in the neighborhood are totally behind it and totally supporting it. And it could go so much further. I mean, we could, uh, we could have different, uh, you know, there's room for a couple more vendors. We could introduce, uh, concepts like having a green roof, um, at the market. We could do a better job of recycling in the market. We could start a compost program because there's an incredible amount of produce that gets moved through there. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's kind of in a unique spot, but like you said, it requires policy in some ways to make these things happen because the market is run by the economic development corporation, which is a part of, you know, New York city government. And, um, they are very, you know, everyone has like six bosses, so no one's allowed to do anything. And, um, that is, that's a huge problem. And, and it's kind of the anti-entrepreneurship, uh, you know, sort of approach but unfortunately with uh with city government it can be that way so it's interesting to hear what your mayor is doing for uh for the olympics and for starting green spaces and um i don't know hopefully our mayor bloomberg seems like he is you know green minded an entrepreneur at heart himself and an entrepreneur um maybe he can you know start to make some of these uh existing establishments in New York City be even more vital and more uh, important in this discussion. It reminds me of the whole notion of seeing is believing. And in another part of New York City's government, um, from what I've read, the new head as of a year or so ago of Department of Transportation took her staff over to Copenhagen from the article I read in New York magazine so that they could see the bike riding lanes that have been retrofitted in the old city. And it's just a really interesting thing, like what are the sort of seeing as believing things we could do to other parts, departments um, in New York City's government here or in any city's government so that they actually could go see what entrepreneurs as well as infrastructural engineers and governments are doing in other places so that everyone realizes maybe takes that level of fear off if you've seen another city or another business do something that otherwise seems very difficult. Absolutely. Well, I feel like, unfortunately, we've run out of time today on on cutting the curd. But if seeing is believing is the thing that we're leaving on, everyone out there listening and everyone who hears the archive of this show has got to see and pick up and read a copy of Carolyn's book, uh, which is, again, (laughs) called Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. It will completely, you know, blow your mind and inspire you about how the city can become a wonderful and, and do place. what Carolyn had hoped, which is the book serves as a tool, a very practical tool in that way. If it gets into people's hands, minds. Absolutely. Well, it got, it got the, the four of us here having a conversation today. <laughs> it's been great. Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, really looking forward to seeing you all in the flesh soon. Absolutely. We'll see you next Sunday on Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. Boy.